Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the privilege and opportunity to be able to gather as your people to worship you. We thank you for this brief time on Sunday morning uh, where we can look deeper into the doctrines of your, of your church. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us, direct us. May we be faithful to Scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, uh, going back to that, in the Reformed tradition, we believe, as you see on your handout, that we believe that God has chosen to work through outward and ordinary means of grace, whereby we hear the gospel and we are nurtured in our faith. And as according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, the means of grace are the ordinances of the church, and especially word, sacrament, and prayer. What we looked at last week... Uh, was the question of how or through whom do we receive these means of grace? How or through whom do we receive these means of grace? And you may recall uh, last week uh, that uh, the, the short answer was, and we just breezed right past it, the short answer was the church. The church is how and through whom we receive the means of grace. Well, that's where we're going to start today. Because if we charge right off and do a topical study on the Word of God, for example, or on the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, or we look at prayer, we'll be missing something that is remarkably missing in modern Christianity. And that is an emphasis on the church. The church is the vehicle through whom, for example, Christ gave His Great Commission. The church is whom Christ gave the keys to the kingdom. The church is the one that Christ has given His ordinances. We're not, for example, baptizing on street corners of individual believers, nor are we administering the Lord's Supper at Sonic. No, the church is the vehicle which God has chosen, which Christ has given. And there are a couple of good places to go to look at this. And uh, today, I'll draw your attention in our tradition uh, to uh, a couple of places. But again, to go back uh, to uh, how and through whom do we receive the means of grace, the Westminster Confession, chapter 25.2, says that outside of the visible church, we're going to talk about that, uh, what visible church means, but outside of the visible church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now that statement troubles some, because some, especially in a parachurch, modern evangelical sense, will say, well, now hold on just a second. I'm not sure that I agree with that statement. But if we remember that, in fact, it is the very Word of God that we have received from the prophets and the apostles through God's Old Testament church and through the New Testament church, in fact, we do know that salvation is only possible through the church. Because we would not have the scriptures, for example. We would not know the gospel. We would not know any of this were it not for God working through His church. Why? Well, because, again, the Westminster Confession helps us think about this in chapter 25.3, the ministry, the oracles, the ordinances of God, for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world have been given to 
the visible church. If you're taking notes, and I think I have that on your handout, that's uh, uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 25.3. As we consider how contrary this is to the individual focus of personal faith unattached to the church within the modern era in which we live, we need to remember, for example, early church father Cyprian said that one cannot have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. Um, and for any of you that have ever had the, the pleasure of, of reading uh, John Calvin's Institutes, um, this is something that, uh, that is, um, will sort of catch you off guard. How many times Calvin refers to the church as the mother? Well, why would Calvin do that? Why would, why would he refer, drawing from church father Cyprian, why would, would Calvin emphasize God is our father and the church is our mother? Well, it is for this reason. It is for this reason because the gospel comes through the church. God has given His, again as the confession puts it, God has given His ministry. God has given His oracles. God has given His ordinances for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world, to the church, to the visible church. And so that's what we're going to look at today in summary form, and I want to start, first of all, with this, uh, because for many of you, especially those of you who were here at Covenant when we went through our study on the Westminster Confession of Faith, it was a number of, of years, probably about four or five years ago, I think it was, uh, seems like yesterday, doesn't it, um, that we went through the Confession of Faith, you're familiar with this, uh, but if you weren't here when we went through that, or if you have slept since then. Um, there's a high likelihood that you're not going to remember or have never even heard the distinction between the invisible and the visible church. And, and I, I want to just say for Rusty's behalf that writing on this whiteboard does not have the charm at the chalkboard. There's no click, there's no tack, there's no blackboard behind me. Um, I've, should I just throw this pen? Just, uh, uh, what, we can handle it for one Sunday, can't we? Yeah, we'll make it back to next. Uh, what, what is the distinction? Now, first of all, before I, I give you the distinction, I'm going to be quoting uh, from Westminster Confession, chapter 25. Yeah, it's probably something you're going to want to remember, right? Chapter 25, it's the section in the Confession on the church. So you're going you're gonna to want to note that. But before I, I, I read to you from chapter 25.1, let me remind you that the Confession had the benefit when it was drafted in the 1640s by virtue of convention, it had the benefit of drawing from the other creeds and confessions of the church. And so because of that, it's drawing. In other words, in the, in the confession, uh, the Westminster Assembly was not inventing the will. They're, they're not coming up with anything new. Uh, they're simply classifying it with terms, and I think they're helpful terms, uh, distinguishing between invisible and visible. So, here we go. Westminster Confession, chapter 25.1. And incidentally, if you have a copy of the confession that we give out to new members at this church, you'll have the scripture proof text at the bottom of that. So uh, if you have your copy, you can look at those uh, later. Quote, 
the Catholic, or what's the word Catholic mean? Universal. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one, under Christ the head thereof. And is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Alright, so let's understand what that means first of all. And then we'll look at some scripture. Uh, I've got two on your handout. I've got two passages uh, to highlight on this. So first of all, let's understand. Did I print out on your handout that quote from chapter 25? 25.1, so you have what I just read, excellent. Alright, so let's first of all understand this. So it says the Catholic or universal church, so what is meant by universal church? Well, it's going to answer that for you. Is first, invisible. Well, why is it invisible? That should be the question. Well, they're going to help answer this. It's invisible because it consists of the whole number of the elect. Now, I don't know how long human beings have been on this round ball floating through space. But here's what I do know, is that God predestined before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, right? And predestined in love, Paul says, those who will be adopted. I'm paraphrasing Ephesians chapter 1. And so here's what we know. We know past, for however many thousands of years, present, and future, all of the elect whom God has predestined are part of the universal church. That's, that, that's what it is saying here. The universal church, which is invisible, and why does it have to be invisible? Because we're not currently with those who are in the past. We're only with those who are in the present. But in addition to that, we're not with all of the elect throughout all of the world. I have brothers and sisters in Christ that, that are my friends in, in Senegal, West Africa. I'm not with them today, nor are you, but we're part of the universal church. In addition to that, those who are to come. So it consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one. Now, when will we be gathered into one? That's right. Yeah, so, so in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no unbelievers, only the elect, right? And we will all be together as one. Until that time, which will be a visible time, right? Until that time, the church, the universal church, the Catholic church is invisible. And who is the head of this universal, this Catholic church, this invisible church? Christ is the head. There is no, uh, uh, there, there is no political appointee. There is no certain appointed person or by heredity head of the church. The only head of the church is Christ. And the church is, and note the last sentence here, the spouse, 
So in other words, what, what they're now going to do is they're going to, to list the, the metaphors used in Scripture. The church is the spouse, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the fullness of Him that filleth all and all. And so we are the presence of Christ here. So also in the gathered, the assembly, in the end, in the new heavens and the new earth, then it will, we might say, the invisible becomes the visible. Now a couple of passages of Scripture I want to draw to your attention. The first is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10 and then also verses 22 and 23. <clears throat> God set forth in Christ a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, and He put all things under His feet, and gave him, that is God, put all things under his feet, and gave him head over all things to the church. That's an important part of that verse. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. Now the key thing, and there are a number of things that we could draw out in this passage, but we're not technically exegeting this passage. I'm using it simply as a scripture reference to emphasize this point of the invisible church. And the main thing that I want you to, to see here is that Paul is telling us that the church, it is an absolute necessity in the economy of God. It must be there. God has predestined that it be there. It is a part, it is essential to everything that we understand about our relationship with God. And again, to, I'm not trying to beat a dead horse here, but because we are in 2023 and because the air that we breathe is so fixated on things that would take us from the church. And the idea that, that you can, well, you can be a, a Christian, but the church is just optional. Um, well, how contrary this is to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. God has designed it as such that the church is, in fact, the representation of Christ here, the fullness of Him. The second verse that I want to draw to your attention is Colossians chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 18. And Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Now, I know many of us are familiar with this verse, but think about it in reverse. Think about what Paul is saying in this. So Christ is to be preeminent. That is, we might say in popular vernacular, He is to be first place in everything. Everything He's supposed to be first place. And He gives a rationale here because He is the beginning. In the beginning, what's John 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God, etc., etc., and so he is in the beginning, but also he is the firstborn from the dead. So then Paul's tying in there the resurrection of Christ. He who was in the beginning, so also is 
the first to resurrect from the dead, and then, we're going in reverse order, right? And then, what does he use as exhibit A? What's the case study he gives? The church. Now, he could have used a number of different examples. He could have said, theoretically, he could have said, well, now he needs to be first place in your life. And we would all agree with that, would we not? But he chooses to give the example of the church. Christ is to be first place in the church. The reason he does that, as we see in the elaboration in, or not the elaboration, but the remaining text in Colossians, is the church is necessary. It is essential to the Christian life. So, in summary, that's the invisible church. That's why I think the uh, confession, uh, using this term, I think that's a helpful term. I think invisible, well, I can't see it, so forth and so on, so it helps me understand that definition. So then, what's the visible church? Because in chapter 25, it said that salvation is through the visible church. So we would know that that's a, 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 a key point. So now, look at point 2 of chapter 25, and let's look at this together. <clears throat> the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel. Pause there for just a second. Huh? What, how, how can the invisible church be Catholic or universal and the visible church be Catholic or universal? What's the distinction? Well, here, the assembly's not talking about the elect past, present, and future, but the church is universal in the sense, like the example that I gave of brothers and sisters in Senegal, the church is, in fact, all around the world, right? Not just confined to Fort Smith, Arkansas. Not just confined to the United States of America. Not just confined to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the church is, in this sense, un universal. And it is under the gospel. Now, what would, that, what would under the gospel mean? And why would that be important? The idea here is, remember, the first point in chapter 25 immediately went to the topic of the elect, right? So, how do the elect come effectively to salvation? By faith, through the gospel, right? So, so the necessity of the gospel is there, and that's the classification in the visible church. In, in other words, and, and this is something, this may ring true with some of you, some of you, this may sound bizarre, but it, it's why we should never have the thought, uh, oh, I don't need to share the gospel because, well, you know, the elect are the elect. They're going to come anyway. Isn't that what you weirdo Presbyterians believe? Right? Well, we may be weirdos, but we don't believe that. We believe that only through the gospel of Jesus Christ is someone saved. And so, it is necessary that the visible church, that is the church here and now, which we're going to look in greater detail, we have to be under, as the confession puts it, under the gospel. The gospel is primary. It is essential. 
And then it elaborates here, and just a historical note. So what was going on in the 1640s when the Westminster Assembly met and uh, the Westminster Confession was drafted? Just church history note 101. What was going on in England at that time? Civil War. So this is the this is the um, uh, the the, the uh, rebellion against Charles the uh, First, King of, of England. Uh, this is uh, the the derivation of parliamentary procedure and the formation of the assembly. That is the the uh, theologians of England in that time along with delegates from Scotland are are brought in and they meet and they hold this assembly and one of the things that is specified in regards to the church is this the church of England is not the universal visible church so the clarification is made here we see it here in parentheses not confined to one nation as before under law. Now, what's that's a reference to? And it's not a reference to England or to the British Isles. What does it mean, not confined to one nation as before under law? That's exactly right. So, so Israel was the Old Testament church. And so it's confined by the law of God. God gave His ordinance, His commands, His ordinances, His law to Israel. And as the Old Testament church, they were confined to what? One one nation, right? But under the New Covenant, that is not the case. Under the New Covenant, the gospel is advanced to all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all nations, and is not confined to one nation, nor under the law. For Close parentheses. Now, let's read the rest of this. Consist of all those throughout the world, so there we go, all of our brothers and sisters, and what's the definition? Those that profess the true religion. What's the true religion? Gospel of Jesus Christ only. That's it. Precisely. Those who profess, we might say, faith in Jesus Christ, those who have made a profession of faith, and of their children, pause there, why is that added? Why are the children added to those who have not professed faith? And incidentally, the inference here is those children who are not old enough, uh, we would say have not reached the age of discretion or accountability to make a profession of faith. Why do they include their children? That's right. They're children of the covenant. We're going to get into this a lot more in depth when we get to the section on the sacraments and baptism. But the general Reformed Protestant understanding is is that the children of believers are included in the covenant. Does that mean that the children of believing parents uh, don't have the requirement to profess faith at the age of discretion? Nope. It doesn't mean that. But drawing from, and I have this on your handout, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. 
The word holy in Greek, the, the English word translated from the Greek has the connotation of being set apart. In other words, this is the way I, I explain it, is the children of believing parents are different. They are different. I know this goes against the general American idea, but this is what we believe the Bible teaches, is that as a believer, my parents are, my children are different. Why are they different? Because they are set apart by virtue of God's covenant of grace that He has made with us in Christ. And so that child is set apart. Again, we'll get to this in baptism. This is why we set apart our children by, uh, by the sacrament of baptism. But then in Acts 2, verse 39, then Paul, Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, says, For the promise, what was the promise? That's exactly right. If you couldn't hear Don, he, he quoted the passage in Genesis of the covenant that God made with Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham, right? And so on the day of Pentecost, Peter's preaching with the assistance of multilingual assistance, right? On the day of Pentecost, he's preaching and he says, Now, God made a promise, a covenant with Abraham. And who did that include? Just those who believe the covenant? No. God made a covenant with Abraham and with your children, with your descendants. And then what sign did God give Abraham to give to the sons of the covenant? Circumcision. That's right. Now again, we're going to go into this in much greater detail when we come to, uh, to baptism to understand how God worked covenantally in families and parents and children. But for right now, I'm just trying to give you an understanding of why does the confession, why did all of this assembly of theologians include the, the point of their children in this? And that is why. So we go back to uh, chapter 25.2 on your handout consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and their children. Now, in modern punctuation, there's a colon there, meaning now, here's what follows. And is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation? Now think about this just a second. First of all, is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ? Sometimes moderns will have the idea that the, the kingdom is, is somewhere out there, right? Maybe in space or, or, or something like that. But the confession, drawing from the scriptures, is classifying the church as quantifying the kingdom here on earth, right? And then what? What's the other metaphor they include there? The house. The idea of, the, of a house there in Greek also in drawing from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is carrying the, the, the connotation of, of temple or house of God. So while the, the temple was confined to Mount Zion in Jerusalem under the Old Covenant, what did Jesus tell the woman at the well? Well, salvation is of the Jews, true, but what did He tell, tell her about worship? There's a time coming when 
You won't go to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to worship the Lord your God, but rather you will worship Him in spirit and in truth, which is a reference to the new covenant and the era in which we no longer worship the Lord in a place, but as a people. And then the family of God. And we've emphasized this a lot here in studies that we have done. But again, uh, those who are in Christ are part of the family of God. We are one as brothers and sisters. It's incidentally, uh, I'm looking around John and and Greg, uh, our elders who have gone to uh, presbytery before to general assembly, uh, one of the first points, if, if you've never been, uh, one of the first points that sort of catches you off guard is they begin every meeting by addressing fathers and brothers. Uh, fathers and brothers, we're gathered here together. And, and the idea is that, well, we've gathered as a, a family, we have those who are, are older, you know, like John and Greg, not me. I'm more in the I'm in the brother range, not in the father range. Um, uh, but but the idea is that 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 family uh, of God, and so uh, the uh, scripture references that I have for this, we've got enough time. The scripture references that I have for this are First Corinthians chapter one, verse two, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And the general idea of what I'm trying to convey with that scripture reference is, is that this visible church consists of all of those who profess the Lord Jesus Christ and their children, which is the second point. I've already gone over uh, the idea of children being included as set apart uh, as, the, as the children of believers, and that the visible church is the kingdom of Christ. Uh, first, uh, rather, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. What's the entry point into the kingdom of Christ? Well, the, 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 yeah, the, I sort of, we might say the doors are, the, are the, the church, but it is through faith that we enter into the kingdom. And the visible church is the household and family of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so, and again, we, we know that that Paul, both Paul and Peter elaborate on this concept uh, of the temple and that we're, we're living stones being built into this temple of God. And as we assemble, uh, the Apostle Paul makes reference to the Holy Spirit and the temple of God in two ways. Uh, one way in a singular, in the sense that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but also in a plural. The church, as we assemble, are... Uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then salvation is, this is the last part, is ordinarily through the visible church. Now pause there for just a second because we're almost finished with our study. Why did, do you think, why do you think that the assembly added the word ordinarily there? 
Why not? So look back at, 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 at point two of chapter 25. The last part says, out of which, meaning out, outside of the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Well, that's a good point. They would they would be sent by the church, but 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 when a new convert comes to faith in Christ, they've not yet been able to assemble as a church. That's a good. Incidentally, if it makes you feel better, I actually don't know the answer to this, and there's not good commentary on why they added the ordinary. I've got a couple of theories, and this is one of them. One is in in the, in the sense that there there there's not the ability, and yet. The gospel does advance by virtue of the church. In, in our, for example, and this is the way uh, we as traditional conservative uh, Presbyterians believe, uh, we, we believe that, that missionaries are not sent outside of the church, but they are sent by the church. And so in our denomination, there's not one single international missionary that does not have a full, active, and in good standing membership in a local church here. So we, we don't send anybody to Kenya who doesn't have a membership in our denomination in a church here. And, and again, the idea is that, that you must be attached to a local visible church. But why else do you think? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, through, through the, 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 the church's prophets, through the church's apostles, we have the Word of God, and someone can come in contact. If you couldn't hear John, he gave the example of a hotel room and opening the Gideon Bible, and, and they're reading the, the gospel truth and, and believing. So that, that gospel advancement comes through the, the church, albeit the ancient church, but in that case, they're, they're not saved theoretically in that moment in time within the church. What else? Yeah, JJ. Yeah, that, that's a good point in, in terms of the, 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 the ordinary sense, yeah, with, with them working within what God has created. So here's my theory. And I could be wrong, and so I'm on video. So, you know, if I'm, I'm wrong, don't send me like 5,000 emails, uh, or I don't get 5,000 emails, but one. I get one email. I think also there's the possibility of John the Baptist. So John, John the Baptist was indwelled by the Holy Spirit when? Before he was born. Yeah. So, now, the idea is, is of course, he was... He was within the Old Testament church, per se. Uh, but in, in John, it was an extraordinary occurrence. Um, has, has, to our knowledge, has that ever happened since uh, John? I mean, obviously, apart from the conception of Christ in Mary's womb. Uh, but apart from John the Baptist, we have ever any evidence of that ever happening? No. Uh, is that how God ordinarily works? No. Uh, is an extraordinary act of grace uh, that is specifically noted in the Scripture. And as I have said before, uh, description is not prescription. 
right? Just because we read something in the Bible and it's described to us doesn't mean that's how God ordinarily works. How does God ordinarily work? Well, God ordinarily works through the advancement and the believing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'll close on this point. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. All that believed were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. And so the idea is, is that what's happening in the New Testament church in that moment, it's, it's like a family. And people are believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and, and this local visible church is just growing and growing and, and growing. And we read later in Acts uh, that, in fact, they're sharing life together, so forth and so on. Yeah. Well, actually, it does include them. It does include them. That's a great point. So, so J.D. had said the visible church doesn't include those who are part of a church but are unbelievers. Uh, but in fact, that is a distinction. And uh, probably something I may elaborate on, on next week. Just because someone makes a profession of faith does not mean that they're a true believer. They may be a, a false professor of faith. And yet, they're still part of the visible church. They are not part of the invisible church. And so that's, that's the, the distinction here. When John says in 1 John, they were, they, were, uh, they were a part of us. How's it go? He, they were a part of us, but they were not of us. They were with us, they were not of us. Something along those ideas. The idea is, is that they professed to be part of the church, and they were, in fact, part of that visible church. Uh, I'll pause here and just say this to bring it into 2023. I would imagine all of us can list examples of maybe friends or fellow church members that we have had who for a time seemed to be this dynamic, faithful Christian and then denied the faith, walked away from it all. In fact, in many cases, they become adversaries of Christianity, so forth and so on. Uh, so the general idea is that the invisible church is in fact made up of the elect. Those who are, to J.D.'s point, those who are truly saved, because only the elect are truly saved, right? So those who are truly saved are part of the invisible church, past, present, and future. Those who are part of the visible church include the elect, but it can also include false prophets, false teachers, false professors, and we may not know until the end whether or not they were truly saved. Does that help? Yeah, so, so it is the, the key word for, for your, your understanding there is that that profess the true faith. Doesn't mean they're saved. I can list on one hand and give you five examples after class of people I know that profess the faith that are not believers, not professing the faith today. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, to, to, I'll repeat that. Uh, Chris said that R.C. Sproul says that there's a distinction between a profession of faith and a possession of faith. 
And that's the distinction that's, that's made here, uh, is that you can profess the faith, but not be of the faith. Incidentally, we're, we're, we'll go into this in greater detail, but you've got to read all of chapter 25. So don't just go to point two and go, well, there it is, because later in the confession, it's going to talk about those who are not of the faith. And so you're going to want to read all of, of chapter 25, but we'll, we'll get into this in greater depth next week. Any other question or observation? Yeah. When you made the reference to churches and other football, did you give the scriptural reference to that Galatians 4.25? Yeah, I, di I didn't. Why don't you quote that for us? Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, Galatians, what Dom was saying there, if you couldn't hear him, is he said, going all the way back to the beginning of our study this morning, talking about the mother of the church, for your notes, Galatians chapter 4, verse 25, uh, the Apostle Paul says that the Jerusalem of above is the mother of us all. And so the general idea there is that the invisible church in this case is, is also our mother. Other questions or comments? All right. We're going to keep going, so bear with me here. We're going we're gonna to get through this, uh, but next week we're going to elaborate on more on what it means and what's the necessity of the church. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of this day, and we thank you for your church. We thank you that it is through the church that we have heard the gospel and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that it is through the church that we mature and grow. We are indeed nurtured in our faith. And so on this Lord's Day, as we assemble as a local visible church, we ask that you would bless us, and that you may be glorified through our worship of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.